I'll meet you in, in Ephesians 2. Tonight we're going to be on what is, I think, our eighth lesson in this study uh, as we are walking with the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Tonight is going to be one of those lessons where we try to knock out five or six verses, and really there's two major themes that happen in this, but I want to subtitle this Grace and Kindness, even though this is actually the last thought that we want to get to tonight, but I, there's some things that we kind of have to, to work through in order to do that. Um, I did have a few things on my heart. I think it, part of it's just been because we haven't been together as a whole group in weeks. Um, and so kind of had some th- stuff sort of piling up that I, I want to go over. And also, as I have conversations with people who are on this journey, um, who are walking this out, whether it's grace or the finished work or the love of God, it surfaces things that I realize that need talked about once in a while. And when we're doing a lesson called Grace and Kindness, um, I come from church backgrounds where if you talked about grace and kindness, it was, it was probably a youth group message. Like it literally was not for adults. Adults wanted to talk about sin and the law and the end of the world. But if you were talking to young people, you could talk about grace and kindness and the gentleness of God. It was almost like as if you're young or a young Christian, you need to hear. And I'm just, I'm just going to say it the way I heard it, okay? If you were young and a young Christian, you need to hear the, the good side of God, the soft side of God, the loving side of God. As you grow up, as you mature, whether you're 15 or 50, as you grow into God, it's time to get a little more serious. So you start hearing the God that demands. The God that demands can also be angry. God that is angry is judgmental. The God that is judgmental will pay you back. He's watching. Be careful. And I think it's also why um, sometimes we have people who are young in the church, young in the faith, and then the longer they're in the faith, sometimes the less likely they are to stay with the faith. Part of that might be because we pulled an old bait and switch. We bring the good God to you with the gospel and say, God loves you. Jesus paid the price. Then you, when you take that gift and you consume it, about the time it hits your belly and starts to help you grow in your own identity, we switch the message to, okay, now here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. If you don't do it, you're going to be in big trouble. And then we're shocked that people are sort of walking away. They come into this loving God. They hear about the grace of God. And then they, they turn and walk away because the demands are just too much or whatever. And, and sometimes we'll go, well, this is, you know, just filtering out who really got saved. That's how I used to say it. This just filters out who really wants to live for God. Because some people just really aren't cut out for this. And some people, I mean, you might as well find out now. You're going to find out later, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and so I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to uh, downplay grace and kindness. This is a heartbeat message for Paul. If you've read the two-thirds of the New Testament that is the Apostle Paul, you cannot get around that Paul was radical about grace. By the way, Paul's the one who coined the phrase hyper-grace, where iniquity doth abound, grace doth superabound, hyperabound. A superabundant grace is a hyper-grace. That's Pauline theology. And he built that off of watching Jesus, watching how Jesus loved, watching how Jesus acted. So grace and kindness is not a base, is not a low level lesson. I actually think it's the heartbeat of God, the heartbeat of what Jesus does, and it needs returned to over and over. The reason that I'm doing this, the reason that I do Tuesday nights is not simply so that we have material to give to an online audience. I've 
been in ministry 30 years, I've been the cause of trauma for people in trying to live for God. I've been the cause of fear and heartache for people that just wanted to go to heaven when they die. That quite frankly just wanted to be loved. They already had enough trash happening to them at home and in their past and in their childhood. And then I helped pile on a lot of times with messages of fear and performance and an angry God. And I'm not, I don't want to be a peddler of trauma anymore. And so I'm trying to pay it forward. I'm trying to pay forward the mercy of God. I'm trying to pay forward the grace of God that has so radically transformed me, my life, my ministry, my marriage, my day-to-day life. That my impetus for walking this out now is not so I don't go to hell, so that I go to heaven. But truly my impetus of walking this out now is to maybe in some way alleviate a little bit of the hell that people are already going through. That's the grace of God to me. It's not a theology. It's not just a theory. It's not some clever Christian word. It's the life of Christ in action in a way that releases us into the liberty of what it means to actually be the sons and daughters of God. That's the grace of God. And there is no divorcing the grace of God from the kindness of God. You cannot get around it. If God is gracious, God is by default kind. And if God is gracious, God is by default um, gentle. These are fruits of the Spirit. It's actually where we'll land tonight. Um, What we've done, I think, um, is there's been a lot of terms bandied about. There's been stuff about message of grace, love of God, whatever it is that we've kind of created, whatever kind of cultures we've created around that. Um, A lot of versions of it. Even a big word going around now called deconstruction. There's a lot of people talking about sort of tearing down the things they come up in. I'm neither a fan nor an opponent of the phrase deconstruction. I, I realize that sometimes you got to knock some stuff down that used to matter, um, but you also got to rebuild something in their place because everything you remove leaves a vacuum. So whatever you knock down that doesn't get anything built in its place is going to become a problem at some point in your walk. And so it's, it's best to figure out if you're going to deconstruct what you're going to construct. Um, in doing that, in, in being in, in involved in those terminologies, I, I kind of want to get started with a question because I had a conversation this week that sort of spawned some of this for me. Um, and I know we haven't read any text yet, but that's also not unusual. You guys know. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, have we done a disservice? This is rhetorical. Don't answer it. Just roll it in your head. Because I don't know that there's a right answer, but I'm going to try. Have we done a disservice to the gospel by emphasizing grace as the centerpiece of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the reason I ask that is because what happens in some people is that as they hear the grace of God and become liberated, they then push off all of the Christianity restraints, all of the things that sort of made them Christian. That manifests in different ways. Like maybe they don't read their Bible anymore. Maybe they don't give in the offering. Maybe they don't go to church. Maybe they don't do anything for God. Maybe they feel that who needs to do anything? I've I've got the grace of God. I see this so much that it makes me wonder if we need a renewed teaching 
on this one simple fact that you and I have been released from the law and yet we are not lawless. All right, so let me start there tonight as a baseline. You and I have been released from the law and yet we are not lawless. What I mean by that is we have been released from performance. We have been released from trying to do good to get good. We have been released from being afraid that we're not going to be saved tomorrow. We have been released from, I've got to please God through what I do. And in, in place of that, somehow we've taken grace in some ways. And because we've pushed off the restraints of the law, we forgot that just because we're not underneath the law, the law is just stopping us. Restrictions. Because we're not underneath the law does not mean we don't have fences around who we are. We don't have fences around our Christianity. And that fence is basically that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient for me. And so therefore, if I lived in a way in which I acted as if I were lawless, I would live in a way that brought shame to the grace that saved me. And so therefore, I don't live as if I'm lawless because I'm truly not. I've been released from the law of sin and death but I've been put under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so I think that we need a revival of sorts in grace circles and in grace teaching that grace is a release from the restrictions of the law for righteousness, but it's not a life in which I have no spiritual restrictions. And I'm going to give you a very simple one. Kindness. (laughs) Grace without that isn't much grace at all. And so where there is no kindness, there is no grace. I don't, mean, I, I don't mean to say that if someone's kind, they understand grace, but I'd say it's a good place to start. With that in mind, let's head towards that with a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, and I want to use New King James on verse 1, and I want to use New Revised Standard on verse 1. Here's why. You'll notice a little bit of a difference, and this is not... This is not an argument between the New King James translator and the New Revised Standard Version translator. It's not an argument about Greek syntax. This is an argument about interpolation. I'll explain. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead through the trespasses and sins. If you have a hard copy, he made alive is almost always going to be italicized. Those slant letters in your hard copy. And the slant letters are additions to the English text that are not in the Greek. And so therefore, he made alive is not in the original Greek. And I'm bringing this up because I typically read New King James. But every now and then I I come across a verse when I'm laying this out for you that I go, "Mm, this is not, the translators, they messed this up enough that we need to go somewhere else. And so the NRSV drops he made alive. You were dead through the trespasses and sins. If you're an immature Bible student, you'll get all frazzled and up in the air and start a blog post about how the NRSV is trying to remove very important things from the New King James Version of the Bible, like he made alive. But the reality is, is we have an interpolation issue. An interpolation is when you take something from one spot and you move it to another spot where it might not have originally happened. So what happens in Ephesians 2.5 is that the Apostle Paul says, Jesus made you alive. But the translators didn't want you to wait till verse 5 to realize that he made you alive. 
So the translators take he made him alive from verse 5 and they interpolate it and they move it up into verse 1. And you, you can get rid of that, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Which, by the way, is what the NRSV says. You were dead through your trespasses and your sins. So the he made alive has been added back in because it pops up in verse 5. So I just want you to know that so that you understand when you see those slant words, why they're there, and why sometimes your translations at first glance look as if they're removing words. And we get all up in the air and in arms, up in arms about translations, and sometimes it's way simpler than we're making it, and not near as nefarious and demonic as we're making it either. <laughs> all right. So, with that in mind, he made you alive, or let's just say, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a no-brainer. When I didn't know Jesus, I'm dead. Where in exactly what's wrong with me? This is baseline theology. If we didn't believe this, why present the gospel? We're telling people, you don't have life if you don't have Christ. That's Paul's basic argument. You don't have life, you don't have Christ. If you have Christ, he can make you alive. And that leads us into then the rest of this passage. And we jump back to New King James. In which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. A little bit of word salad by Paul. Was honestly, even, even in the Greek. A lot of stuff happening because Paul's jumped into the metaphysical. Paul's jumped into the invisible. Paul's jumped into the visible. Paul uses a Greek word, sarx, S-A-R-X, for flesh, which often gets translated as some invisible force that drives you, like um, lust of the flesh. We go, is that natural lust, things you can actually touch, or is that something that happens down your spirit? Paul never explains. You just have to wait on the context. So let me slowly work context, and this is not to try to be a word-for-word exegete, but it's just to try to get us to understand where Paul is. There was a time, because verse 1 told you this, there was a time you were dead. You didn't know Christ. Here's what happens in that state. You walked the way everyone else walked according to the powers of this world's spirit. That same spirit is now at work, and then Paul puts a familial phrase, meaning family-oriented phrase. That spirit now works in the sons of disobedience. This is a linking sentence that puts everybody in the same boat. We like to use the phrase, we're all in the same boat. That's what Paul's doing 2,000 years ago. It, the same boat, everybody is sons, means family. There's a family of man on the earth. You're all part of it. Before you come to Christ, you're all dead in your sins and your trespasses in desperate need of a Savior. And you conducted yourselves in the lust of your flesh. In other words, you conducted yourselves the only way you knew how. You did whatever looked right in your eyes. You did whatever you wanted to. This is your state before coming to Christ. You fulfilled your desires, whatever you thought about, whatever you wanted to do. And here's why. By nature, you were children of wrath just as the others. Trip up statements for people in grace is when you come across words like judgment and wrath. So you get to the end of verse 3 and you find out that the whole world is by nature children of wrath. And the reason I say that trips us up is because here we are declaring that God's not mad. That God took everything at, at Calvary and He put all of that in Christ and He judged your sin. He judged your sin, He judged even, and He judged the sin of the world. He judged the enemy at Calvary and then resurrected us in a newness of life. And in that moment, 
everything that's wrong with the powers of the air are accomplished in Jesus. So what does this talk about? By nature, the whole world are children of wrath. This scares us a lot when we got into grace circles, so much so that people actually back off of the grace of God and lean towards a vengeful, sort of vindictive, angry God because it's obvious that there's a wrath of God that's spoken of in the Bible. I want to take you to a comparison text. Remember I told you the sister book to Ephesians, Colossians. It's not word for word, but it's really close. There are moments where you can tell Paul almost rolled his pen out of one letter and right into the other. So look at how this same idea happens in Colossians chapter 3. If you were raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. This is one of my personal favorites, by the way, Colossians 3.3. 3. Because you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And one of the great death paradoxes of the New Testament is everybody's dead before they meet Jesus. And then when you come to Jesus, everybody dies. So there's a part of you that is dead without Him. And you bring that to Him and He resurrects you into His new life. But to the resurrected you, that old you is now dead. It, that, it's dead in Christ. So whoever you are now in Christ is not who you were before you met Christ. And who you were before you met Christ is dead. And if you will get Colossians 3.3 into your psyche, it will help you to go through the world when things don't go your way. You get your feelings hurt, you get offended. And every now and then the Holy Spirit will have to come to you and go, I thought you were dead. And it's difficult for you to be this angry if you're dead. One of the reasons why you're this mad, one of the reasons why you're this tore up, one of the reasons why you can't figure this out is because you have forgotten that you are dead. And most of us have forgotten about 10,000 times that we're supposed to be dead. And so we function as if we are in Christ, but in the world, but we're really only sort of metaphysically in Christ. We're not really in Christ. We're sort of theologically in Christ, like we hope to go to heaven when we die in Christ, but not really so sold out that the old us is gone. And that's what you're dealing with when you're dealing with Paul. By the way, don't talk message of grace if you're not willing to talk about that. Because that is the message of grace that says, you, the old you is dead. Good news. The old you is not living again. Let him go. Pick up who you are in Christ. So you died, your life's here with Christ in God. Start to think that way. Think on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. So there's a real you. Okay, there's a you that maybe you don't even see because you get infatuated with the part of you that's supposed to be dead and not as infatuated with the part of you that is alive. But that real you is going to appear. And this isn't just an end of the world verse. Some of, these, some of our verses we've pushed to a, to a final eschatology so much we don't have any room for them to be fulfilled in us now. Like, for instance, I think Christ wants to make an appearance to all of you. And I think the Apostle Paul would have said amen, because if you're walking the road to Damascus and your name is Saul and you're going to kill some Christians in the next town and Jesus shows up and you give your heart to Christ in the middle of that road, don't tell that guy that Jesus doesn't make appearances to people. So I think he wants to make appearance. And I, I know you're, you may not have a road to Damascus appearance, but he's going to make an appearance somehow in your life. And as he reveals himself, the real you shows up. So because of that, put to death your members that are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, 
This is the same guy that preaches grace. And yet, the same guy that preaches grace says, the old you's dead, so stop acting like he's not. So there's a bunch of stuff that you might need to stop doing. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire. Coming. You, could list, you could list all you want here. It's not Paul going, if you keep doing this, you're going to go to hell. It's Paul saying, don't you want the hell you're in to stop? And if it, it could if some of these things could be left aside. Six, because of these things, I did all of this for this verse. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Once again, we have a wrath of God, sons of disobedience verse that we think negates everything we've been saying about grace. Because I get people to throw stuff like this at you. You'll say, God loves you. God's not mad at you. Why don't we get, stop getting up here and preaching a, a wrath, an angry God? And I'll get an email, phone call. Somebody wants to meet you in a foyer and say, hey, the Bible's pretty clear, Pastor. The Bible's pretty clear is always an indication that someone doesn't study their Bible, <laughs> by the way. That's just a hint. That's, co that's code for I read this on Facebook. All right. Because <laughs> it's hard for anything to be clear that came from Greek to Latin, to Old English, to New English, to Secondary English. Okay, you get my point. So, it, so they'll go, okay, you can preach that God's not mad, you can preach grace, but hey, the Bible clearly says the wrath of God's come upon the sons of disobedience, so therefore, God's really mad, and He's going to fry people that, that disobey Him. And part of this is our understanding of wrath and what we've done with that. So I want you to think about this. In the midst of our revelation that God is not an angry judge, but rather a loving father. And if you need to pause there for a moment and let that soak in, then do. Because really what we are, the reason why we brag about being sons and daughters is because we have a dad. Okay. Because you have parent, you have son-daughter. Son-daughter relationship means you have a heavenly father. All right. So that's an indisputable fact, is that we know we have a loving father. So in our revelation that God's more loving father than angry judge, do not eliminate the wrath of God. God's wrath is not expressed in retribution. And I use the word payback. His wrath is not expressed in retribution terminology, but his wrath is expressed as the setting right of wrongs. He is the righteous judge, meaning he brings justice to injustice. Okay, so think about this. Because when people think about wrath, we think of it in terms of anger. We don't think of it in terms of justice. And that's because we're not thinking of it as a father. We're thinking of it as a judge. You are sons of your father. If you're sons of your father, then he doesn't stop being a father when you screw up. He doesn't kick you out, go, I'm no longer your dad, now I'm your judge. No, he says, I'm going to bring justice to my kids. And by the way, when he looks at the earth, he looks at all of them as his. Remember, they're children in disobedience. They're somebody's kid. And the devil don't have kids. So... As sons of disobedience, we have a planet full of people who live in the now. They live according to whatever they want to do. We're all in the same boat. We live according to our flesh. We just read that in Colossians. So because of this, the wrath of God has come upon the children of disobedience. Wrath from a father, not a judge. If wrath comes from a father, it is to bring justice 
to the wrongdoings of his kids. That kind of wrath, unfortunately, is almost never taught and preached. Because when we say God is a God of wrath, we instantly think smoke coming out of his nose, fire coming out of his ears. He's got a lightning bolt in his hand and he's going to get you. And he's coming after you and you'll never be able to hide from the wrath of God. This is how we talk. And if we would talk in terms of a father, we would realize that no father pursues his children that way. But no father gets rid of the right to be, have wrath. And so the father doesn't have a retributive wrath. Retributive wrath is I pay you back for what you did wrong. You wronged me, I'm going to wrong you. Does that sound like God? You wronged me, I'm going to teach you a lesson. You see, this makes sense to us because we are retributive justice kind of people. Our books, our movies, and our TV shows... The guy that gets stomped on for an hour and 30 minutes at the beginning of the movie spends the last 30 minutes blowing up the world and winning. And we get kind of excited about it because that's retributive justice. I'm going to go make things right. But the reality is, I believe that a just God is only just because that root word is the root word of justice. A just God is only just because a just God brings justice. That's the writing of things that are wrong. He's righteous because he brings justice to that injustice. Like, remember, give me Romans 1.18. Think about this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I want you to think about something. I've told you guys this before, but this is one of those things that I keep circling back to because I think we've been so conditioned one way that we have to hear it 15 times the other way before we ever pull ourselves out of the ditch. We're in the ditch as Christians when it comes to God's righteousness because we've so personalized it that we have taken righteousness and we've hijacked it as our own thing instead of as a corporate thing. If I say to you, what's it mean to be righteous? You'll, you'll talk about not sinning. You won't talk about doing right to your neighbor. I mean, it's like a default position. If you ask the average Christian, what's it mean to be righteous? They'll go, stop sinning. And if you want to get really specific, they can name seven or eight big sins for you. Quit doing that, 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 that. Start doing this and this and this and this. And almost never start doing this is bring justice to injust to people who are in, in injustice. Lift the poor. To get hold of the hurting and the dying. And yet when Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? I want to know who I'm supposed to love. Jesus doesn't tell you a story about not sinning. He tells you a story about a Samaritan going down a road and finding a dude beat up till he's almost dead. And he spends the entire story having the Samaritan give out of his pocket to bring the other guy to wholeness. And Jesus goes, that would be your neighbor, and that would be the fulfillment of the law, and that would be the ultimate expression of love. So what I've told you 15 times, let me tell you one more time. And that is that there is no Greek, there is no Greek difference between justice and righteousness. Okay. What's the verse we just read? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And actually, you know what two verses before this? is the most famous Paul verse maybe in the New Testament. Let me, let me just quote for you. You don't even have to turn back. Romans 1.16, just boop, 
boop, two up. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. He goes, therein is the, God, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. All right? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Faith to faith, just live by faith. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So what Paul is doing is saying that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. But the word righteousness is the word for justice. So let's start over. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Inside of the gospel is the justice of God revealed. You get to see how just God is if you give people the good news. The justice of God is revealed and the just, those who have had justice exacted, live by faith. Because the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustices in people who suppress truth by living unjustly. I didn't do anything there except take the English, we've, we, a Greek word we've hijacked to only mean one thing and let it mean what Paul's thinking, which is the gospel brings justice to you. The gospel brings you up to the level of God's justice. And in that is revealed the justice of God across time. The gospel reveals the justice of God. The wrath of God is also revealed in the gospel. How? Because the wrath of God is revealed against anything ungodly and anything unjust. In other words, if you want to tick God off, push injustice on His children. And by His children, I mean the family of man. So the role of wrath is not a God who smacks you because you failed. It is a God that lifts the bottom end of the pool and tells all of His children, this is what you're supposed to be doing. If you're not doing this, we're in trouble. This is our job. This is why we are, quote unquote, saved. This is what we've been saved out of, injustice, into a world in which justice is part of what we do. Take that thought and then jump one chapter. Because Paul's just on this flow. We're not in Romans, although we'd probably be a great study. But when you get to Romans 2, Paul then says this. This might be the, the ultimate sum up for Paul about wrath. In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the justice of God. Righteous. So, Look at, look at it this way. That, to me, this is Paul's great landing spot. The rejection of the justice of God as presented in Jesus stores up the wrath of God in our heart. And the wrath of God is not God coming to beat us to death because we have failed. But the wrath of God is the rejection of the justice of God as we push against God's justice. And God calls that His wrath. So you can receive the love of God and give it out. Or you can reject the love of God for both yourself and others. And the rejection is called wrath. Right. Soak that up. That takes a constant working of understanding the love of God and the wrath of God versus God's so mad he's about to kill everyone. Because in fact, if that's your God, you can't trust that you haven't crossed that line. 
How do you know? Like, what's the line? Good luck. And you're just, you're just a few years away from an absolute religious meltdown. Because you don't have a God that loves you first. You have a God that loves you till. And what happens on the backside of the meltdown is religious PTSD, where you're so scared of anything that even looks like God that you run from the church. You run from ministry. You run from the disciplines. You run from the call. I, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm around people all the time who are living in a world of religious post-traumatic stress disorder, and they keep picking the scab. I know that's a crude illustration, but they do. They got hurt. God was mad at me. Church beat me up. I can't please God. Forget it. Every time you're around them, they pick the scab again. So it'll bleed all over again. They want to talk about it all the time. They want to rehearse it all the time. The grace of God is for Christ to take his nail-scarred hand and touch the scab. So I, I, I truly believe there's healing for your hurts and your pains. That's the grace of God. And so the grace of God is not boundaries down, go live like a maniac. And listen, the truth is the boundaries are down. You can go live like a maniac. And I tell people all the time, the more hell you want to go live in, go for it. I mean, that's the hell you create for yourself. The good news is, is that if you make your bed in hell, he'll make his bed with you. That was the Davidic promise. If I make my bed in hell, he'll make his bed with me. So wherever you go, God's going to go. So get used to it. But wouldn't it be better to live within his grace rather than trying to reject His grace and living in a place where you, in which those injustices are always trying to be repaired. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. I told you this was really a two-thought process tonight, this lesson. And there's a couple of things to cover, and let's, we're going to sort of start to roll into that second part. God who is rich in mercy, this is verse 4. God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. I, I just, I'm, I love the book. I love the book. I love to read the Bible. I love the, my time with the Lord. I'm just, I've been in this 46, almost 46 years. Um, I'm tired of, of having to defend the God who is rich in mercy at the expense of the God who's mad at everybody and ready to burn the world. You know, I'm tired. I, I, I'm wearied. This is, in, this is in all of our Bibles. I mean, we don't get to pick and choose. We don't, we don't get to say, okay, I don't want that God. I want this God. But how many of you realize we do have a living, breathing embodiment of what God would do if He were human? This is why if you're not paying attention to Jesus, you're not paying attention to why you're in this thing. I mean, you're just in it for brownie points and gold stars. If you're not paying attention to Jesus, you have absolutely no idea how you're supposed to treat your enemies. You are literally just living out here in the world, just trying to buy someone's top 40 bestseller and listen to the latest praise album. Maybe you'll figure something out, make it through another week. The truth is, if you just watch Jesus, he'd show you how to treat your enemies. He'd show you how to fall down, get up. He'd show you how to live when you're in poverty. He'd show you how to walk into the wilderness. He'd show you how to face the devil. He'd even show you how to die. He'll give you lessons on how to die with dignity and honor and fullness and glory. He covers the gamut of humanity because 
He's rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead, this is back to verse 1, by the way, we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. There's that interpolated line that the New King James pulls out, lifts up, puts in verse 1. That's the line right there. Made us alive together with Christ, parenthetical, by grace you've been saved. And what, let's stay there for just a second, because this is so Paul. You used to be dead, now you're alive. Oh, by the way, in case you've forgotten, it's by grace that you have been saved. What's saved? If I handed out three by five cards and I moved around the room and said, everybody write your definition of saved, you'd be amazed how many definitions we'd get. Almost none of them would be the same thing. All of us are saved, nobody knows what it means. It's incredible in Christianity. Like you just say to people, are you saved? And they go, yeah, I'm saved. What's that mean? I mean, what's it mean to be saved? Because if I follow you with a pressing second question, I go, what are you saved from? And if you say hell, then I'm, I'm amazed because you're saved from something you don't, even, you don't even know where it is, what it is, how long it lasts, or if it's real. You've got some scriptures, but you're saved from something you didn't even know you were in? How excited are you to be saved from something you didn't know you were in? I mean, is that a saved you want to brag about? Couldn't you be saved from something tangible? Like saved from something you were actually in trouble to? Like literally in trouble to? What if saved could mean so much more than this theological mishmash of terms that we heard in a song somewhere? I don't know. And maybe that's what I am. What if it could be more? Well, it can. Look at the Greek. Because this is that word saved. The Greek word is sozo. And I love this. As Paul uses this in Ephesians 2, it's a contraction of the same Greek word for safe. But it's often translated from Greek into English using the verb form. In fact, the Gospels do this a lot when it would say that Jesus came to heal. It would be the verb form of sozo. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. But he also, it gets translated as to heal, which tells me, based upon the multiple ways that sozo appears, grace heals us and grace makes you safe. And because we have so emphasized physical healing in the church, to the point that we don't have any room for sozo to actually be healing our inner misery, healing our abuse, healing our molestations, healing our anger, healing our jealousy, healing our wrath, healing our greed. We only think of healing as prayer lines, aunt had cancer, doesn't have cancer anymore. That's great. I celebrate that healing. But when you say you're saved, it'd be nice to have something you know you're saved from. So maybe I've been saved from the pain that that caused me when I was a kid. Maybe I'm being saved from the disappointment that I have in God, in the church, in my spouse, in my parents. I don't know, because I don't know what you need saved from. But I know you need saved. You see, I'm being healed of stuff. Seven years ago, almost eight years ago, when we went on this great journey, we took the gospel different states and I didn't know what I was doing. I just needed healed. I needed to get saved. Now I was already saved. 
by Christian definitions. I mean, I'd ask Jesus into my heart. I've been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, been in ministry, pastor of the church, all that good stuff. But I needed saved from what I was becoming. I needed saved from that little monster of ambition that woke up every day and wanted to build something big. And ambition drove me, not passion for people, but the chance to get your name a little bigger, get your footprint a little bigger, get your church a little bigger, do something big, because you know, God knows big's the way it's got to be. You've got to be big. You've got to do something. I had to be saved from that. I don't know what you need saved from. You might need saved from a whole different... It's most likely you need saved from stuff I can't even imagine. That's okay. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. Lives with you. Knows the stuff you won't even admit. But He'll work with you. It is by grace we are saved. You know why it's so hard for us to walk into salvation? Because we got our hands on it. If it's by works that we are saved, then you have to fix you. You have to save you. you got to clean it up. But if it's by grace we are saved, then it's His job to do in me what needs done in me, to fix in me what needs fixed in me. Ephesians 2.6 He raised us up together made us sit in heavenly places. I just want to link this back to 120 just for your own uh, your own Study. Go back to that next verse. 120 said he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in heavenly places. They're the same thing. Okay, You see this also in Colossians 3. You were dead, he raised you up seat with Christ. And I, I wanted to put both of those verses back up so that you realize this is not where you're going when you die. This is where you went when you died to your old man. You are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now I know you're seated in this room, but you're technically seated with Christ in heavenly places, and that lets us land right here, Ephesians 2, 7. I love this verse because I don't understand it. And I mean, I mean that in the best way I know how to say that. I don't have any idea how many ages there are to come. But it's plural. And Paul didn't do it on accident. In the ages to come, Paul wrote it before the temple fell down in AD 70, so maybe he's thinking someday there's not going to be a physical temple. That'll be a new age. He's right. If he could peer into the crystal ball into 2023 and see the world now, he wouldn't recognize any of it, but I got a feeling he'd go, that's a new age. I mean, what they're doing, that's a new age. That's an age to come. Ages to come. I don't have any idea all that God is going to do, but I do know that in the ages to come, what God wants to do is show how rich His grace is in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, that leads me here. Rich grace is expressed through the kindness of Jesus. Grace that is presented without kindness is not grace. A Jesus presented as anything but kind is an antichrist. There's no other definition. If, he, if it's Jesus is not kind. I heard, a, I heard a, a guy say this three weeks ago and I almost threw up my mouth. He said, I tell you what, Jesus is about to come back and he's going to have a sword in his hand and this time he ain't playing around. Listen to that. This time he ain't playing around. Which means the first time he was here, he's playing around. That mug was playing around. You going out and feeding, feeding people with bread and fish? Playing around. Walking on the water? Playing around. Going to the well? Healing people? 
Go to the cross, playing around. Could have won, had legions of angels ready to pull him off the cross. Not going to do that, playing around. But the Jesus that's coming, then this guy got excited. He couldn't wait for that Jesus. The Jesus that's coming is going to have a sword in his hand. No, he won't, because that's not in the Bible. And when he comes, he's not playing around. I'd propose he was not playing around the first time he was here. Jesus didn't come and kind of screw this up. Because I honestly think that's, that's kind of why we think the book of Revelation is in the Bible. I heard a guy say that recently. He goes, you know, my interpretation of the book of Revelation is that the Gospels present Jesus as gentle and kind, but that's never, the other, that's never both sides of the coin. You need the other side of wrath, and that's why God dropped Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Oh, this is what we're fighting against. This is what we're standing against when people don't understand the wrath of God as my rejection of the love of God that I store up in my heart against what God's trying to do. He never needs to pick up a sword because he's got one coming out of his mouth, according to both Hebrews and the book of Revelation. It's greater for a Jesus who speaks life over you than a Jesus that acts like Rambo. <laughs> and in truth, he wasn't playing around when he told us to turn our cheek on our, when we're smitten or to carry the load two miles when we're asked to carry one. That is not a Jesus who's playing around. He dies at Calvary when he could have won through the mechanisms of the world. He definitely could have picked up the weaponry of warfare and defeated the kingdoms of the earth. He could have bowed on a knee to Satan and locked arms with the enemy and conquered the whole world. But that would have been a Jesus playing around on his true identity. There's a war against kindness in our society. Kindness and gentleness are considered weak versions of a Christianity some people don't want anything more to do with. We are now in a society where we are celebrating brashness, argumentativeness, cockiness, and being right. We do not have room for people who do not occasionally tell the world off. Speaking your mind is not a fruit of the Spirit. Getting your way, <laughs> getting your way is not a fruit of the Spirit. Saying the first thing you think of is not a fruit of the Spirit. Speaking your truth is not a fruit of the Spirit. Okay? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Here's our, here's our, our final stop. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I don't care what the rest of the world tells you, against such there is no law. So, the, what this is saying is, the law will never bring these out in you. Right? And that's true. I just noticed that, I mean, this is something to me. In the ages to come, God's going to show me what grace looks like by showing me how kind Jesus is. And one of the things that will happen in me as I get that revelation is that kindness will come out of me. Yes. So you are not seeing a, a brazen and battle-tested version of the Holy Ghost when you see someone cruel in the name of Jesus. I came up in ministry circles where cruelty from the pulpit was a mark of the anointing. Anger, vitriol, and pointing out what was wrong with people 
was what we thought the apex of what it would look like to be anointed was. And all the while, Jesus is standing in the wings trying to show us the kindness of God. (laughs) What I hope is that somebody sees the title Grace and Kindness and they badly need an update on grace. And maybe as they start to watch, they realize that one of the things they've done with grace is push all the law out of the way for their righteousness, but ended up pushing it out of the way altogether. And that maybe as they get a revelation of who God is and who Jesus is, they'll realize that kindness is exactly the quality of the Jesus that we met. Let's pray. And as we pray, do with it as you will. You are the ground. Sometimes you're thorny ground. Sometimes you're stony ground. Sometimes you're fertile ground. Sometimes it's your mood. Sometimes it's your listening. Sometimes it's just not the word for you. I can't tell you what to do with it, but I pray that it water into your soul tonight. Father, thank you for this word that has been such a wonderful journey for me today and tonight. Father, thank you for where you have taken us. Thank you for this opportunity to share the kindness of Jesus. I pray we've done so in a way that takes the spotlight off of all of us and squarely onto your son. Father, I just pay it forward tonight. You've been so good to me. You are the God who is rich in mercy and kind through Christ. Give us a revelation of that. However, you must do it in Jesus' name. And before I say amen, it's just as simple as this. You believe what you choose to believe. You want to believe in the the God rich in mercy and kind through Jesus Christ, then start believing in it. And chase it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.